It's Sunday, April 4th, 2010, and Svein Richard Bronseg is in a taxi on his way to Heathrow Airport, headed back to Norway, and he is bummed. As the CEO of Norsk Hydro, he had just spent the last four days negotiating with the CEO of a Brazilian company, Vala, over the purchase of one of the largest bauxite mines in the world, as well as the company's gigantic alumina refinery. The purchase would solve Norsk Hydro's biggest problem. They needed access to raw materials to make aluminum, one of their core products. The price tag was huge, $6 billion. If it went through, the deal would be record-breaking, the biggest single purchase by a Norwegian-owned company in the history of the nation. But after four days of hard haggling... In the last meeting, I said, this is not going to work because the gap was too big. So... I said that I will go back to the airport. As the taxi wound its way westward, Svein Richard pondered the situation. Since he took over as CEO in 2009, he'd worked day and night to keep Norsk Hydro afloat. A weak dollar and declining aluminum prices meant Norsk Hydro had been hemorrhaging money. At one point, roughly 10 million kroner, or 2 million US dollars, a day. Everyone in the aluminum industry was Struggling. But as the saying goes, out of crisis comes opportunity. That was uh, a good opportunity for me to talk to uh, the CEO of Vale, which also had some problems with aluminium because the aluminium uh, business at that time globally was very much down and many companies lost money at that time. The deal with Vale could have been a lifesaver. I thought that the deal was lost. And then... The phone rang in the back of the taxi. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you're listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Today, I'm going to tell you the surprising stories of how aluminum became one of the driving forces in the Norwegian economy, and what that means now as more and more people rely on aluminum for everything from making electric cars to energy-efficient windows and doors. I'll even take you behind the scenes to see what the future holds as researchers figure out advanced ways to make aluminum stronger, more energy-efficient, and easier to recycle. It's a story of a new nation trying to find its way in the global economy with brilliant engineers who found themselves forced into an uncomfortable alliance with Nazi Germany. There were British transplants who early on built worker welfare into their industrial planning. And a young Norwegian engineer and NTNU graduate who after 24 years took the helm of his company and transformed it into a global giant. Even the Luftwaffe's Hermann Göring plays a cameo role. The aluminum industry connected Norway, the political system, and the Norwegian economy to the global economy. That's 
Hans-Otto Fröland and I am professor in uh, contemporary European history at NTNU. Hans-Otto has combed through public documents, company records, private letters, and newspaper articles to put together the economic history of aluminum in Norway. It is so illuminating. It helps me understand the political economy globally as well as nationally and the Norwegian political economy in a country highly dependent on foreign markets because Norway is too small to... We would have been, had the subsistence economy had we been doing only farming. It wasn't until the late 1800s that scientists and engineers began to figure out how to extract it from ore at anything approaching useful amounts. Part of the problem was that extracting aluminum from bauxite ore needed something that was in desperately short supply at the turn of the last century. That thing was electricity. In the early 1900s, Norway was a place that earned most of its export income from its merchant fleet and from fish and wood. It turns out what saved countless numbers of Norwegians from having to subsist on cabbage, potatoes, and cod was water. More accurately, hydropower. Norway had abundant resources of cheap energy. But while Norway had plenty of waterfalls, it didn't have much capital to build a modern economy. For one thing, when the aluminum age first began, Norway was still a very young country. When it became independent of Sweden in 1905, Norway had an economy that was based on the extraction of natural resources. The question then, Hans Otto says, was how to enter the world economy in a smart way. Norway had the ability to exploit its waterfalls to generate electricity. But smelting aluminum? That was pretty complicated. So they needed outside help. And they needed outside money, foreign capital. So it was only in 1906 that British Aluminium Company started investing in aluminium production. And this was really a big issue at the time because Norway was a new nation in 1905 and so there was a economic nationalism, was much preferred, and the regulations set up to control foreign investments in Norwegian electrochemical and metallurgical industries was widely supported. But they were managed quite liberally simply because this was a strategy, a part of Norwegian modernization strategy. And there was not sufficient capital in Norway to build up this aluminum industry. It turned out that Norway's national fervor stood the country in good stead. Why? One of the risks of having a country's export economy based on the extraction of natural resources and raw materials is that foreign companies, but not local entities, can profit a lot by developing these resources or raw materials. Norway, as it happens, realized early on that they had to protect themselves from foreign companies coming in and buying up all the rights to the country's waterfalls. So they enacted a series of laws that continue to be unique in Europe that have strict requirements for any non-Norwegian companies looking to exploit the country's waterfalls or other resources as it happens. There was a law they called the Panic Law, 
because so many foreigners came to Norway to buy up waterfalls cheap because it was poor peasants who, who owned these waterfalls and they didn't know the future value of it. Essentially, these laws and regulations limited the time a foreign entity could license a waterfall for power production and return the rights to the waterfall to the state after the license period ended. The government also created other requirements, such as requiring foreign companies to be registered and governed by Norwegian law, and to buy as much as possible of the materials they needed in Norway. The law also allows the government or municipalities to enact a tax on the use of the waterfall. And many scholars would argue that this regulations specifically is crucial to understand why a resource-abundant country like Norway never was forced into the resource curse. The theory of the resource curse says that the most resource-rich countries are the poorest countries. Think of exploitation in countries like Angola, Nigeria, Sudan, the Republic of Congo, which are all rich in oil or diamonds or other minerals, and yet residents there have a very low income and a fairly low quality of life. Very often, this kind of economy is foreign capital coming in, grabbing the resources, bringing them out, and taking out the resources and taking all the profits from it. But through this regulation, the argument goes, the Norwegian society, Norwegian government, has been able to establish inward linkages into the domestic economy. This lesson would stand Norway in good stead 60 years later, when another abundant natural resource, oil, was first discovered on the Norwegian continental shelf. Hans Alto thinks that this kind of foresight actually is one reason why Norway's welfare system is as strong as it is today. Yep, Norway wouldn't have had the welfare state it has without these kind of regulations on natural resources. But who were the people who set the stage for developing Norway's aluminum industry? For that, we have to go to Stangfjorden, where the first aluminum ever produced in Norway came from. The company there, Stangfjorden Elektrochemiske Fabriker, was actually owned by the British aluminium company called Baco. They came to Stangfjorden because local residents had already developed the town's waterfall to produce electricity to make fuel out of peat. While producing peat for fuel turned out not to be that profitable, Baco saw they could take advantage of the hydropower and the town's ice-free harbor for an aluminum smelter. It was a good deal for Norway, too, because the country needed foreign expertise and foreign capital in its early years. So Baco brought in a British engineer to run the smelter, a man named... Maurice Russell Turner, a British citizen who actually was the only foreign manager in the aluminium industry who integrated into a Norwegian society. This is the early 1900s, and industrialization, coupled with electrification, was in full swing. 
Companies are building factories all over Europe and North America, and they are eager to keep their workers happy. Morris Russell Turner, who married a Norwegian woman in 1911, just a year after he was appointed manager of the smelter, was no exception. Except that he went above and beyond what most would do. He built housing, schools, a shipyard, and... He wanted streetlights. He took the energy from the factory and, and built uh, streetlights. A school was set up, uh, a public bath, and at least two shuttle boats so that the community, the people in the community, could travel. He wanted to develop this society in which he wanted to live as well with his family and socialize with the locals, which was not very usual among the foreign managers of the other company towns and factories. A photograph from this period shows Turner with his wife and three children in Stangfjorden. He's wearing a gray three-piece suit with knickers instead of pants and a flat cap that looks like something a newsboy might wear. In other words, he was a fairly typical businessman of the time. Except... He was very early aware of the externalities, the, the environmental impact of the aluminum production. You know, from electrolysis, there is a omission of... Fluoride. You probably know fluoride because it's used in toothpaste to strengthen our teeth. But what you may not know is that too much of it can damage your bones. Hans Otto says that local farmers started to notice that their cows had skeletal problems. Turner decided to do something about it. Turner acknowledged this, and he even drafted a plan for taking care of this, to avoid this or find new technology to take care of this, to capture it, so that it did not destroy the environment. However, the London office turned him down. They even rejected that this was the case, the impact, although it seems to me that they were aware of it. Turner eventually got the British Aluminium Company to pay the farmers for their dead or dying cows. But it would be decades before the industry acknowledged the fluoride problem and did something about it. All this might have continued to go swimmingly for Turner, but for one thing. And that one thing was Nazi Germany. Fast forward to April 1940. The Nazis shocked the world and the Norwegian population when they marched into Norway and took full control of the country in a matter of months. Norway thought it would be able to remain neutral like it did during the First World War. But Hitler, he had other plans. Why was Norway, this little country on the northern fringe of Europe, so important to Germany? Well, Norway offered the Nazis access to neutral Sweden and its iron ore deposits, which Germany needed. But the Germans also needed something else. Aluminum had become a strategic metal. If you want to win a war, you have to control the air. And to control the air, you need airplanes. And to produce airplanes, you need aluminum. And other light metals, And to produce aluminum, you need energy. And and Norway had a lot of energy. So when Germany occupied Norway in 1940, Field Marshal Hermann Göring 
as leader of the Luftwaffe and the Air Ministry, put in motion an expansion plan for Norway to make this newly occupied country the supplier of aluminum for the German Luftwaffe and the German aircraft industry. This was a, a very strong German policy. The policy included... What the Germans called Feindvermögen, enemy property, that the Germans could manage. Stangfjorden Elektrochemiske Fabriker was owned by the British, Germany's enemy. So Russell Turner fled back to England. Turner and his family left Stangfjorden on May 1st, 1940, and were able to board a British warship as refugees. They escaped just in the nick of time. The Gestapo came looking for him right after he left. The smelter that Turner left produced small amounts of aluminum during the war, but shut down in 1948. It left a legacy, though. The workers who were trained there went on to work in other Norwegian aluminum smelters. In fact, the largest aluminum smelter in Europe, in Sundal, has workers whose great-great-grandparents worked at Stangfjorden. Another Norwegian aluminum pioneer didn't weather the war quite as well as Turner. His name was... Sigurd Klemmon, he, up to the Second World War, pursued a national strategy of industrialization. He wanted to set up a national industry, freed from the power of the multinational aluminium companies. Claremont's determination allowed him to establish the Norwegian Aluminum Corporation, or NACO, and build a solid industry in the pre-war years. There were other multinational companies that also invested in Norwegian aluminum, but Claremont's NACO was the key producer. So... When Hermann Göring showed up, it put Klerman in a dangerous position. Göring was determined to ramp up Norwegian aluminum production. He had all those planes to build to win the war, after all. Klerman had to choose. He could either cooperate or face the wrath of the Nazis. In the end, for a variety of reasons, he chose to cooperate. Supplying informations to the Germans in 1940, telling them where the power stations were located, where there was potential for setting up new power station, how much power they possibly would produce, the capacity, etc. And this information was absolutely crucial for the Germans when they planned for expanding the Norwegian aluminium production capacity during the occupation. But the Germans were overly ambitious. For one thing, Allied blockades meant there were shortages of bauxite, the ore from which aluminum is smelted. Hans Otto called Göring's expansion plan megalomania. This program, it was overstretched from the beginning. The program never produced a kilo of aluminum in Norway. After the war, Klamen was tried for treason, but not convicted. Nevertheless, he lived his life out in disgrace. But his cooperation with the Nazis actually benefited Norway in the end. The Germans have left a lot of capacities from the, the failed light metals expansion program. And the question for the Norwegian government is what to do. 
with this. The Labour Party government wants to establish uh, an aluminum industry which is free from the constraints of the global cartels. So in 1947, the parliament sets up Ordalverk, which is largely based on the remaining capacities of the light metal program. In 1951, it sets up Sundalverk, based on the, uh, uh, the capacity left by, by the Germans in Sundal. So, Klarman's decision to cooperate actually set the stage for the emergence of one of the world's largest integrated aluminum companies, the Norwegian company you heard about at the beginning of the podcast, Hydro. The two plants, Ordalverk and Sundalverk, would grow and eventually merge, and then, in 1986, would become part of Hydro. Hydro today is the largest integrated aluminium company outside China. That's... Sven-Richard Brandseg, and I have now stepped down as the CEO of Norsk Hydro two, two years ago after uh, working for Hydro in uh, 34 years. When we last heard from Sven-Richard at the top of the podcast, he had just concluded four frustrating days negotiating with the Brazilian company Vala. He was on his way to Heathrow. In the last meeting, I said that this is not going to work because the, the, the gap was too big. We were talking about a lot of money. The deal was six billion US dollars. Uh, so when you're negotiating that, we are talking about quite a lot of money when we have a gap. But we um, we didn't agree. And the last day, I said that we, we I, I will go back to the airport. But so when I was in the taxi in the airport, then he called me and we agreed with our position. The deal was on. The taxi driver was probably surprised when he heard that the person in the backseat was talking about billions of dollars. This purchase of Vali's aluminum business, including one of the largest bauxite mines in the world and a 91% share in the world's largest alumina refinery called Ala Norte, transformed Hydro into... A company with a full value chain from raw material to finished products, which is delivered to assembly lines of uh, automotive industry, for example, and uh, several other market segments. And it's a real global, global company. Remember, alumina is refined from bauxite and is the product used to actually make aluminum. Think of Hermann Göring's failed plans to expand Norwegian aluminum production during the war. One of the many reasons it bombed, sorry, was a lack of bauxite ore. In one big acquisition, Svein Richard remedied this problem. Another area where Svein Richard and Hydro have had a direct impact on the aluminum business is in making the company greener. One of the main reasons that Norway has become so invested in making aluminum is its readily available hydropower. Nevertheless, it still has a pretty big climate footprint, something Svein Richard recognized. He set one of his goals to make hydro. The greenest aluminum company in the world. Uh, in fact, uh, together with researchers and professors at the NTANU, we were able to develop the most energy efficient uh, aluminum production in the world, with also the lowest emissions in the world. And one person who is helping make aluminum greener is... Randy Holmestad in the Department of Physics, NTNU. To understand what Randy does, you first have to understand a little bit about aluminum and how its properties affect its use. If you have a, a rod 
of 100% aluminium, and then you bend it, it will really easily be bent. If you change like 1% to 2% of the content in this rod to magnesium and silicon, and you do the same, you try to bend this long rod, it's much, much harder. It's much, much stronger. And the reason for this extra strength is that this magnesium and silicon, they have made small, small needles that are thousand times thinner than your hair. That is lying in different directions inside this aluminium rod. And that is making the strength. Randy looks deep inside the atomic structure of aluminum to figure out what's going on. Randy can help figure out the best ways to make aluminum as strong and light as possible so it can be used in the cages for electric car batteries, for example. She can also figure out what happens to the strength and properties of aluminum when more and more of the aluminum is recycled. Pretty much all of the aluminum we use now is what is called an alloy and has trace metals in it. But if you mix different kinds of aluminum alloys together when you melt it for recycling, it can cause problems. And this is all about trying to get the industry more sustainable. But remember how Hans Otto said the aluminum industry in Norway illustrated both the good and the bad of globalization? Svein Richard got to experience the downside of the Vale purchase with catastrophic rains in northern Brazil in February 2018. Essentially what happened was that 200 millimeters of rainfall was recorded over 12 hours in the area where Hydro had its Alun Norte alumina refinery, of which 150 millimeters came in just two to three hours. The huge amount of rainwater meant the refinery deliberately released partly treated rainwater to the Para River to prevent its waste treatment system from being overwhelmed. But the management didn't tell the local community what had happened and denied at the beginning that there had even been a problem. The local community was worried that the refinery waste had leaked out of the plant's bauxite residue pits, although a number of independent studies, including studies by the Brazilian state and federal environmental agencies, showed that did not happen. When I heard about that, I took the first plane down to Brazil and visited the villages just to see with my own eyes. Long story short, Hydro realized it had to do more to improve the situation of people living in the area around the refinery, where there were open sewage ditches which overflowed during the huge rains. It was the poorest people you can think about, and they had a terrible situation. So we saw that we had to do more for these people. Then we started a program that uh, has been continued after, after I left, and uh, I think the relationship with neighbors has developed in a very positive direction. Global climate change means that Norway's 50-year love affair with oil from the Norwegian continental shelf will have to come to an end. Does that mean that Norway's post-oil economy will be dominated by aluminum? We'll give Sven Richard the last word. We have been through a period now where, where the energy has been driven by petroleum. And in the next decades, the energy development will be driven by materials to develop solar panels, uh, to develop uh, wind turbines, to replace petroleum, it requires a lot of materials. And the material technologies will be more and more important going forward. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you've been listening to 63 Degrees North, 
an original podcast from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. If you'd like to learn more about the speakers on today's program, or look at some of the academic publications I use to write this script, check out our show notes. Sound design and editorial help from Historia Bruke. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.